This morning we return to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 uh, this morning. Um, the message for this morning is uh, titled, Election, a Difficult Doctrine. Now, in reality, it's not really a difficult doctrine, but I've uh, titled it that way because we'll try to address a little bit some of the issues that we conjure up within our finite minds that make it appear to be a difficult doctrine. And we'll address that a little as we um, carry forward this morning. First, I want to read to you again Ephesians 1 through 14. Remember, that is a right here at the very, very beginning of the book. We see the theology for Ephesians, the theology for the church. And so really in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we, we talk about what it is, um, who we are as a body of Christ, what, what it means to be a part of Christ, the, uh, uh, the body of Christ, and all the riches uh, that we have in Christ as we, as we live as his ambassadors here on earth, as we live as God's ambassadors here on earth. And then the last three chapters really talk about how we live that out, how we do that, how we go about working that out uh, uh, together in a fallen world. So we've got the theology up front, what it is, who we are in Christ, and then how we're to live. It's basically the layout of the book. But here in this first chapter, particularly in these first 14 verses, this one run-on sentence here, we have the theology for the body of Christ, who we are in Christ and um, the riches that belong to us. So I want you to just hear that language again, and then we're going to address uh, verses three through six primarily, but hear that language again, because this is your identity. You're here as a follower of Christ. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what God has done for you and how he's incorporated you into the body of Christ, uh, visibly, locally, but universally as well. Beginning there in verse 1, Paul introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom, and insight, he made known to us the majesty of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an, to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I'm always just tempted to read that and walk away because, you know, it, what can we do with such language? But as God has called us forth to function as a body, as frail as we are, we have the, the, those who are called to the local church as elders have that responsibility to try to work us through this glorious message. But, oh, it, it, I'm so compelled to just read it and let it just rest on our souls. What can you do with it? My goodness. So we'll uh, try to saturate ourselves with that, uh, with that language, the fullness of that large uh, sentence there as we try to work through and, and pick it apart little by little as we enter this, uh, this marvelous book here. 
But first up front, be reminded, believers have a common purpose. We are united in Christ personally, and then by that union, we are united with one another corporately. And again, with all believers at large, but corporately with local visible bodies of believers, the local church. We have a common purpose in Christ. We have a common destiny in Christ, and we have a common source of life in Christ. So Christ is a sinner. He's the center of, of all reality, but he's the center of our reality specifically that we have been redeemed in Christ, made right with holy God. Sinners, fallen sinners, made right with holy God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So we are united in Christ and thus united with one another. We experience the same intimate care and glorious blessings. All the riches of Christ belong to each one of you who are in Christ. They are, they are given. They are not divvied out unequally. All the riches of the majesty of God and salvation belong to each of you. The intimate relationship with God and his care and his pouring out and his gifting of you specifically and the riches that belong to you in your giftedness is full. And here's the reality. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, were we not? In this world, in real space and time, we entered this world. Although God had set us apart before the foundation of this world, as we enter this world, we enter dead in our trespasses and sins. And now we are alive in Christ by God's sovereign power. There's a real act of saving grace in real space and time that God created. And it is glorious. We are one united body with one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have in common the gift of eternal life that is pulsing within us, the spirit of God indwelling each of us. First Corinthians 617 tells us this. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. That is each of us. That is an individual reality of each believer. And then we make up a corporate body that has this same commonality. So verses 1 through 14 here really show us the master plan, the theology of the church, the body of Christ, the picture of the body of Christ. And this theology really uh, begins in eternity past where God designed the blueprint for the church. And in eternity past, the triune God planned out the body of Christ. And we're just in history. We're just living out that theology right now. Actively, you're just living out that theology that the blueprint was laid in eternity past. The plan for the church, the picture of the body of Christ, the reality of the body of Christ was settled in eternity past. And now you're just living out out. History, the history that you're a part of, the lineal history that God has made is just a living out of his blueprint settled in eternity past. All of history revolves around the reality of God's church living out his glory in the world until Christ returns. That's, that, that's the history lesson right there. That was quick, wasn't it? See, I'm, I, I could be a great history teacher. That's it. That sums it up right there. So we're united in Christ. And listen to this. The sum of our united body is display of the manifold wisdom of God. That's the sum of who we are. Our body is in totality the manifold wisdom of the glory of God. As one united body. We manifest Christ to the world and all the angelic realm that looks in and marvels at his manifold wisdom, which is the church. Chapter four of, this, of Ephesians, chapter four, verse 13 says this. We all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is what we are doing. We are maturing in Christ as all the world and all the angelic realm of all creation looks in and marvels at the manifold wisdom of God and designing his church. 
So God manifest in the flesh through the church. That's the corporate reality. That's the reality of who we are. The manifestation of the incarnate Christ in the flesh. We manifest that reality now as the body of Christ. And so with that reality, here's here's an encouragement. Here's a challenge. Here's an application. Your personal testimony, your walk with the Lord, your personal witness, mine, each one of our personal testimonies matters. There's no really, uh, there's no second class uh, Christian. There's no backseat Christian. There's no uh, 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 division uh, of Christians in terms of our responsibility. There's a division of labor. There's a division of roles, but there's no division of responsibility. Each of us intimately has an intimate personal, vivid, powerful, direct, meaningful responsibility to the body of Christ. Our testimony matters. If your personal testimony, if your personal testimony fails, the corporate testimony of the church is hindered. That's how it works. If my personal testimony fails, it affects and hinders the corporate testimony of the body of Christ. And then the world doesn't rightly see or perceive the majesty of Christ. So there is obedience. There is accountability. We are fully engaged. We have a direct personal responsibility. It's just not, it's just not exercising a void. It's exercising the body of Christ. We're all unified. All of our lives matter. They're not, they don't matter in separate categories. They matter exactly the same. We just have differing roles at times. Differing gifts, but one reality. We are united in Christ, and our testimony is part of that. So we matter. Least the world look in and not marvel at the majesty of Christ. And we are called and we are equipped to function in our giftedness. In mutual fellowship. Listen to the language of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. This is who we are. And again, here we're getting to what we are to do by the time we get to chapter 4. But our speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together. Listen to that language there. By what every joint supplies, that speaks of you personally. What every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that speaks to you personally, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That speaks to you personally. That's how it works. So we are engaged in the manifestation of Christ personally and thus corporately. We are one in Christ. That is the function of our unity. That's the functionality of our unity in Christ. It lives out. It is expressed. It is, it is uh, uh, displayed in the, in, the, in, the, in the world through our corporate walk, our corporate testimony, our corporate building one another up. And so that brings us to the source of election. I want you to see the source of election first. And again, we are going to try to deal with that, just that kind of elephant in the room. So I know where you were waiting, man, we're talking about election. We're talking about election for several uh, Lord's days now, you know, when we're going to get the elephant in the room. Well, we'll, we'll, hopefully I can suffice uh, your, your, your um, pondering today. But let's first look at the source of election there in verses three through four, the source. So look there with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there again, that's Paul's uh, uh, um, praise or, or eulogy. He's blessing God here, God the Father primarily. That's, who, that's who's the, the, to whom the blessing belongs in this language. And God the Father, has he is the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So let me back up a little bit and just and try to give you something as we as we are reading Scripture, we're looking at the totality of Scripture, we're trying to put these things together, and we get to a very 
didactic book here, especially just after coming off of Acts, which is a much more historical narrative. And we're trying to put these things together. And then we get to this very precise language in Ephesians. Let me back up a little bit and just give you three types of election that we see in Scripture to maybe help us because there are various types and we don't want to confuse them. So if we can boil it down, Jen, I can give you three types and hopefully this will help. There is uh, in the Old Testament uh, a reality of a theocratic election that speaks to the nation of Israel. Uh, as we would hear in, the, in, the, um, in the, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6, you'll hear this language. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And that's speaking directly to the nation of Israel. Now, that is, that, that is a reality, that is a, that is a type of election that we see in scriptures, a theocratic election. In other words, the nation of Israel was elected by God to be his chosen people, his chosen geopolitical nation of people that he would, that he would reign over as theocratic leader. So they're unique. Old Testament Israel is unique in all the nations that will ever appear on the globe. They're unique. Now, this election, however, has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with personal salvation. That's how we must mark it off. There was an electing of the nation of Israel. That electing did not in itself affect personal salvation. It's different. Some people refer to it in different ways. We'll refer to it as theocratic, meaning that God ruled over them personally as a nation. He was head of that nation. They answered directly to God uniquely. That reality, that relationship had nothing to do with the personal salvation of any Israelite in that time, in that nation. Okay. Also, I want just to be mindful of this, Romans 9, 6. But this is not as though the word of God had failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. Remember that language? As Paul you know, clears that up for us in, in Romans 9 and speaks to the nation of Israel, and there's that language. So were there genuine believers in the nation of Israel? Yes. Trusting by faith in the promised Messiah who was to come. Yes. But was every individual person in the nation of Israel by any means saved just because they were part of the nation of Israel, ethnically or geopolitically? No. So that's what the language here is in Romans 9, 6. That's what this language speaks to. Not all Israel is Israel, is true Israel, are true sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. Some were and some were not. So that theocratic election did not affect the salvation. The salvation is still affected by faith and the promised Messiah to come. Also, there's what we would call uh, uh, an election to vocation or election to a job, a specific job, a certain task unrelated to salvation. Now, can you think of somebody in the Old Testament that would fit under this election? This was, again, an election. This was not democratically voted in. We can think of a role for a certain group of men in the Old Testament that was not uh, elect, elected. Uh, she was not um, uh, elected by vote, but God elected them, elected this office. Yes, priest, right? That's an election to a, to a specific task. These men were elected by God. That role, that, that reality, that, that, that priesthood was elected by God. It was set apart by God. Um. Deuteronomy 18 speaks to all of that. You can look through the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 18 and see that, uh, that vocational election there of the priesthood, my God. What about John 15, 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit remains so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, that language was given to a, a specific group of men in the New, Te in the New Testament. Remember they were? Because they too were elected vocationally. The apostles. That was the apostles of Christ, right? We've talked about them a lot. Haven't we? So the apostles of Christ also would fit in that role. That was men given a task, elected to a task by God for a specific role that has nothing to do with their personal salvation. It's a separate, separate reality, separate election. And then third, there's election unto salvation. 
those chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's what we have here in Ephesians 4. That's speaking to an election and to salvation. Just as, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So maybe that'll kind of uh, help you with that terminology. And there is some differing uh, realities there in terms of just that language, the language of election. So hold those and know those. And we're speaking about the election of God into salvation, of course, here in Ephesians. So hopefully that helps you. In verse three, we hit that doxology, that phrase, that eulogy that Paul gives uh, to God the Father. He's thanking God the Father specifically for designing us as part of the church before time began. That's why he's thanking him. Now, again, is God worthy of his praise? Is he praiseworthy just because he's God? Yes, he is. Forevermore, yes. But Paul here has something specific in mind, and he is praising God the Father for this marvelous work that he has done, this unthinkable, this unbelievable reality that before time began, God had settled the reality of his church. Before time began, he had called us, if you will. Before time began, uh, this blessed God had blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in our redemption in Christ. And Paul just explodes here with this symphonic description of salvation. This is what God has done. This is what the blessed one has done. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, in our Redeemer. And the purpose is to display his electing glory. And he has done this before he established the world at all. It is the source of every blessing. This reality is the source of every blessing. And it's in that sphere, right? That sphere, that heavenly sphere. When we talked about that, it's the unseen spiritual reality, the spiritual sphere also where we reign with Christ. That's where we are now, again, reigning with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians will talk about that in Ephesians 2, 6. Raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about, this spiritual realm. So this is where our blessings reside, and they are full and abundant for all our spiritual well-being, and they do not end. They never end. They're full all the way into glory and extend through glory. They never end. But we are to take hold of them, lay hold of them, and use them here as we display God's worth and majesty and our unity and love for one another and our obedience to Christ. So God the Father is this blessed one here, and he has blessed us in Christ, in the redemption of Christ, who, is, who has redeemed us through his work on the cross. That's where he has accomplished our redemption. And again, God is just praiseworthy, but this is praise for his sovereign election of his church in eternity past. And can't you just see Paul? Isn't Paul just overwhelmed here? Let Paul be a blessing to you here because Paul is just overwhelmed by this. He's pondering this. He's thinking, man, and you can't help it. It's not selfish. You can't help it. He's, th- he's thinking about Paul right here. He's like, man, I was so self-righteous. I was so arrogant. I was so caught up in all my intellect and all my, I was so religious. Oh, was I religious? Oh, man, I was religious. Woo! Could God save a sinner like me who hated him so much? How could he do that? Can you just see Paul? Can you see marvelous how he had me settled before time began and all my wretchedness and all my self-righteousness. He pulled me out in space and time in Christ. He had me, he had me redeemed in Christ. And how he marvels at that. How could that be true of me? How could this glorious God all this time had me set apart for himself in Christ? How could it be? How could it be? And oh, the same is true for us. Oh my goodness, how can it be? But that's the reality. Believers are the objects of God's spiritual blessing here. It's directed towards us. That's what Paul is telling us. It's directed towards us. 
We're in Christ through the power of the indwelling spirit. We have this reality of every spiritual benefit necessary for our spiritual well-being. Every spiritual benefit necessary. So anyone who believes God for the hope of salvation will be redeemed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. That's what it says there, in Christ. So verse 4 tells us this, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We are chosen in Christ. So here comes the question, right? So we're chosen in Christ. And then the question comes, doesn't it? Have you been waiting? But someone says to you, but wait a minute. Hold up. I decided. I decided. And what's the answer? How should we how should we respond? The answer is, well, yes, you did decide. He most certainly did. You are responsible for God's command to repent. Is that not true, brother? We just talked about that this morning. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We're responsible for that. That's necessary. We're to repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the language of Isaiah 55. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Or how about the New Testament? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth uh, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do this, you will be saved. Come to me. There's a calling to repent. There's a command to repent. Did you make a decision when you repented towards God and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely, you did. Yes, you did. So we would say to someone, well, absolutely, that is true. You did decide. There's nothing wrong with that. Alistair Big, Big, uh, Biggs puts, puts it well. He said it like this. God enables us to believe, but God does not believe for us. So here's the reality. When someone says that, wait a minute, I decided. That's true. But you would not be able to decide on Christ if God had not first decided on you. That's how it works. She said, well, wait a minute. that's, that's, That's a bit of a conundrum there, brother. It is an amalgamation. It's, 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 they fit together. This is what we must understand. They fit together. We are raised up with him and we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our reality. And in that, God has adopted us before time began. And in space and time, we have decided on Christ. Both are true. So election is found and sealed in the eternal counsels of the will of God. God is the source of our election. Election is a biblical doctrine. It is straightforwardly presented to us in Scripture. And God is the source. God is the source. He is to be praised for our election. But how we reconcile eternal election and the responsibility of man. That's the rub, right? That's, that's why it seems to be a difficult doctrine. How do we reconcile that? Well, I want to give you, by way of application, how we're to do that. And it's not difficult. And this is not really a difficult doctrine. It's just um, there's tension there for us in our frailty, in our, finite, or our, our finiteness. There's tension for us. They seem to be contradictory realities. But in fact... Uh, uh, in terms of scripture, they're both simply taught. They're both true. They're simply true in scripture. They both hold together in scripture. So the answer resides in God himself. He's the only one that can hold together two self-existing truths that seem contradictory to our little finite minds. Actually, they're doctrinal friends. Our old friend, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famously said this uh, in Reconciling the Two. He says, there's no need to reconcile uh, the two. There's no need to reconcile eternal election and responsibility of man, for they are friends. And no need to reconcile friends. And he is exactly right. 
So let me help you with this. They're both true. And that leaves tension with us. But by no means does that leave tension with your God. The God of all glory, the infinite, glorious, eternal God of all creation can hold these two, self, these two self-existing truths together that seem to be contradictory to us. They're held together in the will and the counsel of God. They seem contradictory in our finite minds, but they are not contradictory to God. So leave the tension with the Lord. Here's why. Why then? Why election? Isn't that the question? Man, okay, brother, I, I, can, I can follow you there. We can leave these things in the hands of God. Yes, but why? Why are these two self-evidentary truths that we find in Scripture and why they seem contradictory? Why the need? Well, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. But, by, but for application for your life and your walk with the Lord, let me say this and, and, and hold on to this. God has used election so that we would marvel at such grace. Because you can't sit here as a saved individual and look back and think and look at Ephesians and think back that the God of all of heaven and earth had you, had you carved out for his own glory and chosen as his elected one before you were ever born, before the earth was ever created. You can't hold that in your mind and not marvel at that grace. That's why. That's why election. Our responsibility is not hard for you to understand. It might be hard for you to reconcile with election, but it's not hard to understand. You see God's law. It's everywhere. You feel the weight of your sin. You know your personal responsibility before your creator. You understand the command to, to come to him and repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that clearly. But it's the election that makes you marvel. It's the election. How could God do that? Isn't that the question? Don't you ask that the question? You're not alone. Why me? Isn't that it? Why me? How can it be? How could God save me? And then how could it be that he had me carved out before time began? Why me? Look, bow to it. Bow to that tension. Worship and wonder at it. Bow to it. Don't minimize one or the other. Isn't that the, isn't that the rub within the body of Christ today? It's nothing new, but it's still here today. We can't get rid of this. There's still the rest. Either we're elevating one or the other, are we not? Either we're, we're elevating election and condescending to all our brethren that just can't get it, or we're elevating the, 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 the free will of man and minimizing the obvious doctrine of election that we find in Scripture. And neither is right. We're to hold them both together and worship the God of our salvation, and marvel at the fact that he would elect us before time began. And understand this, so let me just add this in. Uh, we, we have a free will because we, we, you know, we want to elevate that. We do have a free will. We're free to make our choices, but we're not autonomously free. And so we need to have that in the conversation. But we need to do that with gentleness and care. Not with, a, not with a heavy hand, not with arrogance. We're not autonomously, autonomously free. We are bound by what? Sin. We're bound by sin. Now, I'll give you a little bit on my eschatology. I believe Satan is fully bound right now. But that doesn't mean, fully bound doesn't mean that he cannot engage in, in us and trying to, to, and trying to, um, to uh, uh, hinder us in our walk. He's defeated at the cross, but he still has an active role until Christ returns. So we're still dealing with that reality of sin, our sin nature. We're redeemed in Christ, but we still have that reality. And, and, uh, but redeemed in Christ is a work of God. So we're here, humanity, fallen in Adam, and we have this reality of our sin, and it hinders us. We're free to make our choices, but we're also spiritually blind. 
We can't, and we're, we're spiritually deaf. We can't hear spiritually speaking. We can't see spiritually speaking. We can't do anything to bring ourselves to see the reality of, a, of, a, of the glory of Christ. We have a free will. It's just not autonomous. And we're bound by sin. And we can't in and of ourselves come to Christ. That's why election. That's why election. But we're commanded to repent and believe. And when someone repents and believes, they will be saved. And that's a real act and a real act of their will. But they couldn't get there without election. Both are true. So hold them. I don't want to linger here. So hold them. Hold them and marvel at them. Marvel at such sovereign love and grace. Election is a bastion for our souls. Marvel at it. That God would set his affections on us in his son. What a God. Also, let me encourage you here. Because that is true. Because they are both true. Because God has really elected you out. Because you have responded. And you know that you responded only because God has set you apart to do so. Know this. Also, this reality of holding these two together, not minimizing the two, moves us to rightly obey Scripture when it comes to taking our sin seriously. We can get too haughty and think that we're just uh, able, you know, that it was our, we just did this on our own. We just came to these conclusions on our own. Or we get too caught up in just God setting us apart and somehow that just makes, uh, that, just, that just takes away all the, the responsibility that we have. Neither of those are true. So we hold them together in our frailty. And this is what we do. We take scripture seriously. And here, God's election should move us to take our sins seriously. Because listen to the language of what happens to the elect. The elect are those who will respond. They will repent and believe on Christ. And look what happens there. They're chosen before the foundation of the world. What? That in space and time, they would repent and believe on Christ and what? Would be holy and blameless before him. That's what happens to those who repent uh, towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes them holy. There's a work of God and true believers and is bringing them to uh, spiritual maturity, to holiness. There's a working out of holiness. Now, we are engaged there too. So you have to, you have to hold these things because there we're engaged. There's a responsibility on our part to obey, to obey God, to be concerned about our spiritual walk. Be concerned about others and take our sins seriously. Because we understand we are those that are marked or set apart and marked by, by God's election. Therefore, he makes us holy. That's the evidence of our election. You want to know about that? Because there can be all kinds of false professions in the church, all kinds. We talked this morning, we talk about our children, we pray for our children. The others were, and this morning we're talking about our children and all the children of the church, and, and you know, and, and um, sharing the gospel and encouraging them and discipling them and treating them as disciples, even uh, uh, waiting and hoping, anticipating and praying that God will grant them salvation and telling them about their, their importance of their response, their responsibility to repent and believe on Christ. And how do we know? How do you know? Well, the scripture is clear about that. They begin to walk as those who are being made holy, who are being conformed to the image of Christ. That's true for every single believer. That's exactly how you know. Sometimes that takes time. But that's always happening. Someone is a true believer. They are being more and they're becoming more and more Christ. Why? That's what God does with the elect. That's what happens. So hold that and relish that and treasure that. That's the evidence of election, the hatred of sin, a repentant heart increasingly conforming to the image of Christ, the purifying of self as Christ is pure. That's the evidence of election. That's the evidence of the genuineness of your repentance, of your decision. And that brings us to the purpose of election in verses five and six. Look there with me. 
He has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I'm sorry, I misread that. Let me read that again. I, uh, there's a, there, the Greek doesn't have periods. So um, there was a decision that had to be made here in between verses four and five. And uh, NESB and the, uh, uh, the new, uh, the standard, the standard version, ESV, I believe they both got them right. So the period goes after the sentence there at the end of verse four. Verse uh, five begins in love. And I've got a little sentence jump in mind. So I apologize. Let me read this in its fullness. In love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So what's the purpose of election? We know the source of election is God. We know what his glory is. We know we can hold these biblical doctrines, attentions that may seem just we hold them together because the answer is found in the source. He is the source of our election. And there in the counsel of God, we rest and we marvel at his election. Verse 5 tells us that it, it is in love that he has predestined us. And we really have to get a hold of that. Well, how long does that take? I don't know, a lifetime. We really, but we must get to work on it. In love, he predestined us. So the centerpiece of all creation is the cross of Christ leading to the new heaven and the new earth. That's the centerpiece of all creation because there is the flashpoint of the biblical truth that he has predestined us. There's where it takes place in space and time. It's the cross. So there's, there's more to humanity than just creation. As glorious as creation is, there's more. That was never the final the, uh, reality of the display of God's glory. That's just the beginning. And creation is marvelous. Oh, what a display of God's glory. But within space and time that he created, there is a moment where the Son of God did not just enter this world and take on flesh, but he lived perfectly under the law of God and died a substitutionary atoning death. And it is that, that cross, the flashpoint of all of creation comes to vivid life and meaning. There is the great glory of God, the centerpiece of all creation that points to the new heaven and the new earth where God will glorify himself all the more in the redeemed. So then comes the question again, why me? And may I say to you with all humility, because he has set his love on you. Oh, how humbling that is. Oh, my goodness, how humbling. That's the answer. We, we, all, we wonder why, why I wake up at night. Why, God, would you save me? And all I can come to in Scripture is this. I can't go any further. There's no, you can't go back any further. That's just your own man. That's just your own theological navel picking. You can't go back. This is what he gives us because I loved you. Which leaves us with, good. That brings us back to a sovereign God that tells us because I chose to love you. There's nothing within us that had anything to do with that. Before we were born, God carved us out because he loved us. Now, in the course of justice, none would be saved, right? Not a one. It has nothing to do with our merit. But God knows the beginning from the end and all parts through and through. 
And that is the answer. What is the purpose of our election? It's the glorification of God. But it must start with this. God set his love on us. According to his own good pleasure. Verse 5 goes on to tell us that he adopted us as sons, sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ to himself. And here's the language, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that beloved being in Christ. So he's adopted us. Now, this is an act of free grace, which, which we are privileged sons and daughters of God. He has adopted us. Now, the word there uh, that comes to us as predestined is an interesting word. He's predestined us. He's adopted us. And so... Um, it's, to, to, it's from a root word that, that means to set a boundary, to separate. Orizzo, which you might uh, sound familiar to, that's the, that's the term through which we get our word horizon. So to, to make a boundary, to separate. You can visualize in your mind horizon like you, if you've been out on the seashore there and you look over and you see those beautiful horizons. And when you live down in um, Florida, man, we see some beautiful sunsets. Uh, and, and wow, the horizon is just marvelous. So, the, so it's, that, it's that separating it. It's, it's, to, it's, to, it's, it's to separate. It's to create a boundary. And by the way, just for uh, you flat earthers out there, if, uh, if, you're, if you will lie down on the beach and watch the sun go down, as the sun goes down over the horizon, if you'll stand up, you'll see it go down again. There's a mathematical formula. I'm not, I'm not kidding. So just try it out. It's round. Uh, okay, I digress. But it's a boundary. It's a separation. And then there's um, a little prefix here, pro, which means before. Provinza. To separate before. To create a boundary before, to mark off beforehand. God has predestined us beforehand. He has set us apart beforehand. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn, that being Christ. That he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn because he wrapped himself in flesh that he would identify with sinners. And there, not a substitutionary atoning death on behalf of all who repent and believe on him. And their salvation is found in Christ alone. And there, our adoption is accomplished. And there... Our, our uh, election is accomplished. And there in Christ, we are then redeemed. And now the fullness of our being set apart is accomplished in space and time. So God set his love on us and he chose us and he chose us out from a mass of humanity. As he adopted us as sons and daughters. And we were formerly labeled sons of disobedience, children of wrath, were we not? God who has elected us, gave us birth into this world, and we were born in Adam as sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin. And this is the life in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we were. We were serving another king. We were, we, were, we were under the reign of another king, the prince of this world, the devil, who, is the, who reigns for a time over this world. And there we were sons and daughters of disobedience, but now we've been adopted. God has adopted us in Christ. Adoption is a beautiful picture, isn't it? A beautiful picture. In the Roman world, uh, they had, the, they had the, the concept of adoption. It was very, a very unique approach. And so anyone in the Roman world the father, the patriarch, was in control of the whole family. They controlled uh, all the family and, and all, the, all the land ownership, everything. So the father was in control of this. But the father could adopt sons and daughters out to someone else in the Roman world. Now, when they would do so, they would have to adopt them out as slaves. They would have to become slaves of the adoptee. 
And the process would go like this. They would adopt them out two times and take them back two times for certain periods of time, two times and take them back. And to really assure the seriousness of the adoptee. And on the third time, if the adoptee uh, continued with the process, they would adopt them out for the last time and the adoptee would own them as a slave. And then at that time, all the ownership, all the right, all the authority that the father would hold in full is gone. That belonged to the adoptee. For us, all the whole that Satan had on our lives when we were redeemed in Christ is gone. And there's not a coming back in our adoption. There's not a return like there was in the Roman world. There's no return. Now all our inheritance is found in Christ alone. We belong to God the Father as sons and daughters, as sons and daughters adopted, sons and daughters in our adoption and all our inheritance is eternal and full, and there is no return. Paid in full. We're now children of God. And God has done this, verse 5 tells us, what? According to his kind intention of his will. So God does have a sovereign free will, and he expresses it in his good pleasure. So this is the, this is the picture here. His joy of imparting his riches of salvation to many children. It's what we are to understand as the reason. What's the purpose for our election? God's joy. God is, and the scripture tells you, he's not, he's not begrudgingly adopting, saying, oh, I have to deal with these sons and daughters, these, these low-life sinners. He joyfully adopts us as his own. He joyfully brings us in. So it's for the joy that he grants us the riches of salvation that he grants to many children. It's by his grace for his glory. It's according to the kindness of his will. So it is the will of the Father. It's the intention of the Father. It's the free expression of his good pleasure that he adopts us. That's why. And verse 6 continues. Why? Well, it's his good pleasure. And what is it for? His good pleasure is for the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, which is Christ. Wow. Now that's a mouthful. So what's being said here? Well, it's by his grace. It's for his glory. The gold is the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he's adopted us. That's why he's elected us. That's why we're redeemed in Christ. So all the actions of God have the goal of the praise of God. That's why. God is the source. And then the purpose is his glory. The exaltation of himself. All the weightiness of his essential being is now praised and exalted. The praise of his unmerited favor, that grace extended to us that provides salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial atoning death. That magnifies his divine honor and splendor and power and radiance. The praise of the weightiness of the splendor of the father. That's why. The father's centered out here. The father's carved out here. It's for the father's praise. It's for the magnification of the Father's weighty worth. That's why. So it's praise to the weighty splendor of the Father for his grace, which he has bestowed on us in Christ. So how do we apply such language? How do we take that and kind of mold it and shape it and find a way to plug it into our hearts that we might live this out to his glory? How do we absorb this monumental stuff, this, 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 this magnitude of truth? How do we absorb it? Well, there again, I don't have full answers, but let's, let's try to chip it away at it in terms of practical application for us. When we read this, when we understand this straightforwardly for what it is, the source of our election and the purpose of our election, that cripples our pride that squashes our pride that reduces to powder 
our pride. And it's supposed to. This will render your fleshly pride asunder. This is a pride crusher. So we're to be a humble people. This is true of us. This is humbling. That's what it does for us in terms of application. This humbles us. And it helps us to wonder at his electing love. So we're made humble. We're brought low. And there we're given a greater capacity to marvel as we should at his electing love. Marvel at what God has done. He has laid hold of you by sovereign grace. That makes you a people of honor. Man, I look at the culture and there's no honor. No honor anymore. There's not even hardly respect. There's no honor. But we're to be a people of honor. Why? Because we know our purpose. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify the grandeur of our God who has saved us according to his own good pleasure. That is honor. There's fruitfulness and understanding that we have an honor as to how we're to live. Our lives have meaning and purpose, and you know exactly what it is. You don't have to hunt for it. You know. It's to glorify God in all that you do. What's the chief end of man? You know that, don't you? You know why you know that? Well, you may know it because you read the confession. But you should not. If you're a believer, you know it because it's true of you. You walk that way. You live that way. Your life honors that. We have honor. We have humility and we have honor. And we have security. Man, we're living in a world where security looks like um, it's, it's, it's sparse. It's, uh, as, as the old timers would say, it's scarce as hinting. You don't see it. Not a lot of security. We're living in a tumultuous world, and it's, it seems to be getting worse in our day and the current climate. We know that God is sovereign. But boy, when you think about just the practical realities of just day-to-day security, man, it's not a pleasant thought. For the believer, we have full eternal security. You're the most secure people on the planet. Fort Knox has nothing on you. You're secure. You're a secure people. He will see you through to his eternal glory with his everlasting love. How about that? That's an application for you. No matter what you go through in this life, no matter where God takes you, no matter what he puts you through, no matter what you'll face until he calls you home in glory, he'll see you through it. Nothing will stop you. Nothing will hinder you. Nothing will shut you down. Nothing or no one will set you back or prevent you from praising him to the glory of his grace. You can't be stopped until he's finished with you. You have full-on security of the God who has created the universe and called you out before he created it for this purpose, that your life would magnify his worth. And that should humble you. You have humility. You have a purpose. You have a purpose. And you have security. Nothing can stop you until he calls you home. You're stinking bulletproof. You're secure in Christ. And nothing, no one can take that away. That should give you great comfort. You are free to magnify him at every turn of life. And empowered to do it rightly. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for you alone are glorious. What can we say to such language? What can we say to such grace? What can we say to the glory of your great name? Oh, but that we would marvel. Oh, great King, cause us to marvel. Help us to marvel at your grace. Help us to wonder. Help us to rightly say, why, how, why me? And then understand all the answers that you've given us in Scripture because you, according to your sovereign will, set your love on us. Oh, 
Oh, how that must humble us. Oh, how that must give us honor and purpose. Oh, how that must give us a sense of security that sets us free to worship you well. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, great King. Thank you, great God, for your saving grace that you lavished upon us in Christ. Help us to be mindful of our sin. Help us to hate it. Help us to pursue holiness, for it is what you are working out in us to your glory. Help us to worship you well and magnify your name and magnify the glory of your grace to an onlooking world and the evangelical or in the angelical realm that is all around us in all of creation. That they would see your manifold wisdom. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.